0: to keep up right as we're about to record this intro it looks like the twitter verification has rolled out but this morning we had a verified check and it said official that's now gone and it looks like something totally different has just launched i can't keep up with this colin
1: i mean twitter is the absolute best story on twitter right now
0: wow never heard it said like that that's good (laughs) there you go i like that that's a tweet I should tweet that. You should
1: tweet that. Wow. That's really good. I should have tweeted that a couple days ago. Yeah,
0: man, (sighs) missed the boat. All right. Well, welcome to this episode of the Colin and Samir Show. Today,
1: Colin, what are we talking about? We got a good one today. We're going to start off by talking about the layoffs at Twitter and at Meta and what that says about the creator economy landscape as a whole. We're going to be talking about the advertising industry, how it's changing, and what creators can do to prepare Next, we're talking about collaborating with big organizations versus smaller ones. So as a creator, how do you navigate whether you should work with, you know, really big brands and partners or small ones? Then we touch on splitting revenue in a creative project, uh, even when you feel like you're doing more work. That's an interesting one. Mm -hmm. Lastly, we get to Casey Neistat's advice for creators, which he gave on the Rich Roll podcast.
0: All right, buckle your seatbelts, here we go. Welcome to this episode of The Colin and Samir Show. All right, so we're recording this episode on the morning of, of Wednesday, November 9th. And this morning, Mark Zuckerberg announced that he laid off 13% of the staff at Meta. That's over 11,000 employees.
1: Yeah, I mean, these are serious and what feel like shocking numbers all at once.
0: 11,000 people were laid off today. Yeah. And and in the last week, think about it, at Twitter, how many people were laid off? It was like 7,000, right? Mm-hmm. that's like, think about that amount of people in the creator economy workforce, in the platforms. That's almost 20,000 people being laid off in the last two weeks who work on the platforms that
1: power the creator economy. And some of them being people that we have contact with yeah, that we have know. had contact with. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, we have a partner manager essentially at Twitter who yeah. now we no longer are working with. So it's interesting, you know, real roles that we were interacting with are now vacant. And a lot of this... I think is an important thing for us to look at. And I want to
0: just talk at the top of this show before we get into questions about why does this matter? Why does this new era of the creator economy matter? You know, largely what Meta was saying about their layoffs is it has to do with reduced ad revenue and reduced ad revenue being largely on Facebook and and Instagram because of Apple's privacy. So, Apple essentially, you know, if you've noticed on your iPhone, it asks you if you want to be tracked or not. And because of that, a lot of consumers don't want to be tracked. And now, you know, that means that advertisers don't have as good of advertising products on platforms like Facebook. Because if it's not tracking me, it doesn't know what I want. It's not a direct hit anymore.
1: Yeah. It's not as targeted. Yeah. If I'm checking out a clothing brand on their own website. And then I go to Instagram. If I'm being tracked, you know, and, and that company is playing ads mm-hmm. or purchasing ads on Instagram, then I'll get served an ad for that clothing brand and potentially buy. I have a question. Do you want to be tracked or no? Yeah, I say yes every time.
0: Yeah, I kind of want to be tracked
1: because it's like, give me more relevant ads. I'm like, I'm here, I'm playing the game. Yeah, I'm playing, the, I'm playing into this world. Just track me. I liked when Marquez Brownlee said in his piece about Twitter called Dear Twitter, mm-hmm. he says, if you don't know, the internet is run off of advertising. Yeah, Just that, point blank. Like the internet works because of advertising.
0: This version of the internet is fully ad backed. And I think that's a really important thing to note. You also go back in time and look at, you know, the era of newspapers, magazines, the radio, you know, magazines were a mix, but a lot of that content was also ad backed and then started to move into a subscription model, right? And to speak about that, as we look at the changes happening in these platforms, when you look at Twitter and how much has changed over the past two weeks on Twitter, when you look at what we're talking about with Meta, meaning Facebook and Instagram are no longer really, I mean, of course, advertising revenue is still really significant, oh, yeah. but something's changing. 11,000 people got let go. And then you look at this you know number about YouTube's paying subscribers, meaning how many people pay for YouTube music and YouTube premium that number is 80 million. 80 million people are paying subscribers of YouTube. And now you look at this new version of how we engage with entertainment on the internet. You think about Netflix, you think about Hulu, you think about YouTube, you think about Spotify. A lot of these are subscription-based platforms.
1: Yeah, and this is not new. Like you mentioned, newspapers, every type of media organization, whether they are huge or whether they are a small creator, is looking at these multiple different options. So I could be advertising-backed, I could be direct-to-consumer subscription-backed. And sometimes it's a, it's a mix of both.
0: Yeah, I mean, when I was growing up on TV, you would ask, you know, I would ask my mom to buy different subscriptions to channels, like buy the sports package, buy the, you know, HBO. Remember, you'd like ask mm-hmm. your parents if they buy HBO so you could watch movies. Like, we had to pay subscriptions for different type of content on TV. Although TV is also an ad-backed platform, There was also this heavy influx of subscription-based content that was actually better content, right? Like HBO was better content because you were paying subscription and there was no ads. So I wonder, as we look at the all these shakeups in the creator space, if we're going to start to see a more subscription-driven environment. You know, when I hear that number, eighty million paying subscribers on YouTube, that's really significant. And when you see, you know, the the stats around more people are watching YouTube on their TV than Netflix when you see what Susan put out this week, if you don't know who Susan is, the CEO of YouTube, that shorts are now going to be available in the TV environment.
1: Yeah, those mock-ups looked really cool.
0: Shorts are now going to be available on TV. Are we moving in a direction where it's just like subscription? You know, there will always be advertising. There will always be, even on Hulu, there's advertising, right? You pay a subscription, there's ads. You can pay another subscription for no ads.
1: For me, you know, tracking Elon over the last week, what it's illuminated is that these platforms are so integrated into my daily life. Yeah. That even if he doesn't add much else to it, but he charged, I would pay for Twitter. Just as is. Yeah. And and in Marquez's right. video to call back to that again, like he says one of his pet peeves is that he doesn't want to ever pay for something that was once free and he thinks it'll be very difficult for people. Yeah. to pay for something. Mm -hmm. Twitter, that was once free, unless they add in a bunch of features. I don't know. For me, I look at it and I'm like, wow, these platforms are so integral to how I entertain myself, how I educate myself, how I share with family and Mm -hmm. friends that if they just put a fee on it, I would pay it.
0: Yeah, I mean, I think you look at other aspects of our life. Uber, for example. Everyone takes Ubers. What we don't notice is that Uber slowly increases pricing on us. But because it's dynamic pricing, we don't even notice. Let's think about how much Netflix has increased their pricing. Have they seen a significant drop-off? Like, yeah, I think they did see somewhat of a significant drop-off during the pandemic of people. But uh, No, like, they're
1: slowing in growth.
0: They're slowing in growth. But people aren't leaving because it went from, what, $11 to $15? Like, that's a $4 increase per subscriber, and I have not canceled, you know? And I think- Spotify, for example, I would, if Spotify raised it by a dollar, would you cancel? I probably wouldn't even notice. You wouldn't even notice. So that's, that's, I think, the extra $12 a year is as these platforms get us to start paying subscriptions, it's almost harder to cancel the subscription, you know, or, or like it takes a lot to cancel the subscription when it's integrated
1: into your life. Yeah. It's interesting. You know, I remember being in college, it's like, you know, the first time you move into your own place, now you've got utilities that you need to pay for. Yeah. And for the most part, that was it. It was like you pay rent, you pay utilities, and now coming of age as a young person or a young adult, you have rent, you have utilities, and then you have this whole other sector now, which is basically entertainment fees mm-hmm. of sort. It's, it feels like a utility, right? But it is not like, it feels to like have a necessity. Netflix yeah. or HBO yeah. Max or mm-hmm. Apple TV, and we, even cable is
0: expensive, right? I might be paying more in subscriptions now than I was back in the TV era when the promise was. As the internet rolled out, it was like, no more subscription fees. It's all unbundled and decentralized and you can watch content for free online. All of a sudden I'm looking at it now and I'm like, am I paying more in subscription fees now? Between yeah. YouTube TV, YouTube Premium, Spotify, Netflix, Hulu,
1: HBO Max, Apple TV. What do you, what do you think, obviously, you know, it's our business to cover media and yeah. be informed, but when you add a new subscription, is it based out of FOMO? Like fear of missing out on something that's gonna be culturally relevant, or is it just your appetite for entertainment?
0: No, it's appetite. It's It's your appetite. Yeah, it's like Apple TV was just because of severance. And now I But that's FOMO, right? No, it wasn't FOMO, it was
1: desire to watch it. But you hear about severance. Sure. Like, okay, well now I need Apple TV because I have to watch Severance because everyone's talking about Severance.
0: Yeah. But Maybe like, I don't have that level of FOMO, like Game of Thrones. I didn't watch Game of Thrones. Yeah, but that's where everyone
1: was talking about Game of Thrones. I don't care. Yeah, yeah. I have no desire to watch Game you're of Thrones. You're missing out on a huge community of lovely That feels people. like a Dwight Schrute show. Okay, now where you're bringing The Office into this? You know what I'm saying, though? It's like, I, I didn't watch Game Why of Thrones. Why don't you back off?
0: Okay, now to bring <laughs> this into the world of creators, the thing I keep thinking about, you know, number one, no one is saying advertising is leaving. Advertising is a huge industry. I have a question for you the guessing game, my favorite game. Who's the number one advertiser right now? The top spending advertiser. On what? Across all advertising products. Who Uni- spends the most money on advertising in a year?
1: Unilever? Nope. Okay, I guess. That's, I don't have to do multiple guesses. You don't have to do multiple? Mo- no, That's uh, not how the game works? No. It's Amazon. They
0: spend $16 billion a year in advertising. Wow. Procter & Gamble is up there, who you mentioned Unilever, but they spend $8 billion. Google spends like $3.6 So you start to look at some of these companies, like those are significant ad budgets. If they drop their ad budgets by 4%, 5%, even 10%, it's significant, but there's still a lot of advertising dollars to go around. They're not leaving for good, you know, and they're probably moving a lot more towards creators than not. The thing that I think is interesting is I think a lot of creators should explore like the element of subscription, but I also feel like on these platforms, we don't see that much revenue from YouTube premium subscribers. We see
1: a lot more revenue from advertising. But that's because even though 80 million is a lot of people, in comparison to how much money they make in a year, it's not It's not that right, much. Right. I just wonder how some of that will happen. Like how do we, if it moves to a
0: largely subscription-based platform, how do we get compensated? Yeah. And I also wonder, I said this on the last pod, but I also wonder, should creators and will creators pay to upload content on these platforms? Because it's a business expense for us as we start to get bigger and bigger. And it's a big can of worms to open. But I just wonder, like, as I mentioned, if YouTube charged us a dollar to upload a video, that would be such a nominal cost to us as a business.
1: Yeah, I don't know. I mean, I think that would potentially be too much of a barrier to entry, even just young creators, aspiring creators to think about the fact that you, you have, every time you press publish, you're now taking money out of your bank account. I don't know. But maybe there's different products, right? I'm saying to get into the monetization game. Yeah. I could see it being a type of thing where like you're a career creator, you need different types of things from the platform. So you pay for those. Mark has, again, to bring him up, he brought up, you know, how he would like preference in processing, mm-hmm. I guess, right? Because he uploads like so much 4K footage that he would pay for like immediate processing or, or something along those lines. Yep. And that's very specific to a career creator. Whereas I don't think they would ever charge the the shorts creator, right? Who's putting out, they just want frequency. They want quantity. I can't imagine them charging them. And at the same time, I think it gets confusing because if you do have a big creator, yes, YouTube pays them via ad share and a little bit of YouTube premium, but... You know, I look at exclusive deals like what happened with like Twitch, right? Mm-hmm. And even mm-hmm. YouTube. YouTube pays streamers or to Spotify. be exclusive. Yeah. Some or Spotify with Caller Daddy mm-hmm. and Joe Rogan. I also think there's an element of that. Whereas creators get to be really big and really influential and powerful, platforms will pay out or should pay out. Yeah, that's true. As opposed to charging them for mm-hmm. distribution. They should be paying the creator, it's just like, it's the balance of power, Agreed. I think
0: what's really crazy is when you take a step back and do some math around, um, like how much Spotify pays Joe Rogan, which is $130 million a year, it's actually not that much for Spotify, which is crazy. I thought you were gonna say, it's actually not that much, period. No, no, (laughs) I'm saying for Rogan, I mean, for anyone, that's a crazy amount of money, but I'm saying for Spotify, through the lens of a subscription-based platform that's getting monthly recurring revenue, That's really interesting. Like it's not that much for them and it's probably worth it for them what they did. So anyhow, I think our world is going to get shaken up. It already is. What creators should know is you should always have a diversified, you know, revenue streams. You should always make sure you're making more than you're spending so that you're in a good position for the climate change of our industry And I think we're starting to see a lot more of that. You know, when we think about subscriptions, not only content subscriptions, but we spent a long time with Mark Rober, who has his subscription box called Crunch Labs. It's wildly successful, has people, you know, paying on a monthly basis that has a mix of content and product. I love that business model. You look at Danny Duncan has now launched a sporting goods brand called
1: Good Sport and his own version of Spikeball, I think. Yeah, but these are also big swings, Uh, these have the, you know, I I hope they do well and they probably will because they're creator backed, but, you know, I don't always see a new venture as, it's not like an immediate diversification of revenue if you're going to launch a new venture, right? Like with us, with the published press, when we launched it over a year ago now, the idea around launching it was not, we need to launch this so that we have more revenue from something else immediately. Yep. It was like, we're doing it from a place of purpose, and then revenue could come over time. Yeah, true. I feel like, you know, you brought up Mark Rober. The original diversification of revenue for a creator is to have another job.
0: <laughs> like, <laughs> yeah.
1: you know, he had yeah, 10 true. million subscribers before he left Apple. That's true. And he was making more money as a YouTube creator. Yeah. I'm just saying not that like, um, I don't want creators to feel like they have to launch an entirely new business right. just because they're primarily advertising based.
0: Yep. Totally. Um, all right. We're just sending Jesse outside to go pick up the new pizza product, uh, which is a dippable from Arak, So Arak, um, very large creator who just congrats by the way crossed 10 million subscribers, put out a great video about, uh, crossing 10 million subscribers, but he speaking of diversification launched a, a pizza sauce brand that he's been developing for a long time, launched the sauce first. We tried the sauce, very delightful. Um, and now is launching Dippables to go alongside it. So it's like a little cup of pizza sauce that you dip these like breadsticks into. Very excited to try it. It's going to go into our new creator merch video. Um, But why don't we get into some questions,
1: Cole? Okay, question number one. This one is from the Reddit. It reads, why would a content creator choose a smaller organization over a larger one? Over the last year or more, I've seen a lot of creators go to smaller esports organizations for a larger stake in the company or possibly more support. But Tim the Tap Man and Cloaksy became co-owners where they actually invested in it instead of accepting offers from other large organizations like Hundred Thieves. Same with Ramboo and Misfits. Mm -hmm. Then there are people like QT Cinderella that left a big organization and went to Misfits because they offered to help. I have to assume that large organizations could 10X a creator like QT if they just tried a little bit, but TSM didn't, and there has to be a reason. I'm just trying to understand why large organizations wouldn't really prioritize content slash events since that brings in so much money and ads.
0: All right. So I think this is a, this is a good question, and I think I'm going to apply this beyond gaming, but I think it's the difference between working with a small org and a big org as a creator. This could be like a management company, right? So let's apply that to that logic of should I sign with one of the big big talent representation companies or should I find an independent manager? There's two things. One, in a smaller organization, you can have a lot more impact, a lot more sway as a creator. You can customize things a lot more to your liking, especially if you are a priority to that group. In a larger org, you're going to have bigger opportunities, probably have more money. But the thing is, the larger org doesn't really need you like in this setting, why would a larger organization not want to sign a, you know, huge, huge creator. A lot of that is because they're trying to build a large organization. They don't want it to depend on one person. They need to build a system where you would benefit them, but it's not like if you left or you fell off that it impacts them dramatically. For example, if we signed with a smaller company we're much more intimately involved with them. We have more impact. We have more sway. We can customize things with them. Um, but not everybody wants that, right? Like that creates a lot of dynamic of pressure where they need us to perform. They need it to work with them signing us. Where we're with a bigger company. It's not that same pressure. It's not that same dynamic. And they don't want to rely 100% on us and we don't want to rely 100% on them. So it, it really depends on the dynamic that you want to have.
1: It's actually similar for working with brands Mm -hmm. in a brand deal. Yeah. If we were lifestyle creators and let's say we had two different companies, we had a Levi's and then we had a new up and coming clothing brand. Right. With the new up and coming clothing brand, we're going to mean a lot more to them because they're probably spending with way less creators. So we're getting a lot of attention from them. They're getting attention from us. That can be a good thing. Mm -hmm. It can also be a bad thing because they need you
0: as they, a brand. They need They've got a work.
1: lot on the line. They need it to work. A brand like Levi's, they're spending with tons of creators. You're just a piece in their huge puzzle. Yeah. So that can be good. That can be bad. For example, with Samsung, we don't have much
0: say over how the company is going to market to creators, right? Their, their larger marketing strategy, we don't have much say in that. But also Samsung's expectation with us is not really like we're not pegged against how many phones we sell for samsung we don't need to change the face of their business no so that's that's a really comfortable beneficial relationship because we can focus more on like brand building together now in another context right a more creator economy startup who needs creators to sign up they really need us to convert on that they're really really like it is pegged against how many signups we're generating for them But also the benefit is we get to get on the phone with that creator economy startup and say, hey, I actually think we should position it like this. Mm -hmm. That's the the difference. And in this
1: example of the question, he's actually talking about taking a stake in the company, which with smaller up and coming startup companies, that can happen as Mm -hmm. a creator. You know, we've seen that happen all the time where you can actually get uh, equity in some of the brands that you're promoting. Speaking of brand deals, did you watch Dude Perfect go to space? I did, I have to be fully honest. I'm only halfway through it. Not because I didn't want to finish it. We just went straight into a meeting and I haven't found time to oh, get wow. back to it. But I'm like, they're about in where I'm at right I now. Loved it. They're about to take off.
0: Okay. I loved it. I loved the video. I, what's crazy is a lot of people DM'd us and tagged us because we both said uh, in a podcast, like the first creators to go to space, that video is going to go crazy. It did 10 million views in like, you know, a day. But I was kind of surprised that it was sponsored by Moondow which is like a crypto organization that sends people to space.
1: I'm guessing yeah. you looked into Moondao. I just surprised me. Because you ju- know I looked into Moondao. I was like, I, I need Wait, to know more. I a question. You had time to look into Moondao, but not yes. to finish their video? I went, I saw the ad and I went straight to Moondao.com. So the advertising worked on you. It worked. You, just because you was, left
0: the video it
1: was for Moondao. Remarkable. Dude, perfect. I just would have never expected a crypto DAO sure. to be sponsoring them. I found it interesting.
0: Yeah. So they're, I mean, MoonDAO is a company that's trying to send more people to space. Fascinating. Phenomenal integration because they're actually
1: sending someone here to space. Yeah. Yeah. yeah.
0: Really, really smart integration. Overall, I thought it was super interesting. Okay. Question from the subreddit. uh, How did Yes Theory release their pyramid documentary with a pay what's fair model? What website or company did Yes Theory use to release their pyramid documentary for early access before they posted it on their main channel? So first let's provide some context because Colin and I, were intimately involved in this process. Not only in the production of it, but also in the distribution of this. We also edited this documentary. Very, very involved with this, the ins and outs. The platform was called Gumroad. So let me explain how this worked. Basically, we made a movie with Yes Theory and we wanted to sell it to their audience. Now, Yes Theory, when when we spoke to them and they thought about it, they wanted not to sell it at a fixed price, but they wanted the audience to decide the price that they wanted to pay to watch the movie. So actually, to watch this movie, you could pay anywhere above 99 cents. Now, what was really cool about the Gumroad platform that we put it out on is we really communicated that it was going to be out for two weeks in this Pay What's Fair model, then it was going to be available on YouTube. If you didn't want to pay for early access, you didn't have to. But a lot of people paid for early access, which was awesome.
1: And that's what's really cool about it is that it illuminated to us that value is not just the price on the on the movie mm-hmm. to pay for the movie. For a lot of the people who paid, there was varying levels of value that came down to supporting their favorite creators. So, you know, minimum price was 99 but there were people who paid $1,000. Yeah. Because that's sort of like, you know, the gap there for them was that this purchase for me is worth $1,000 for the amount of money that I'm comfortable spending and have yep. to support these people that I've been following for a long time. So the Pay What's Fair model is super interesting. It captures the the actual true market value. Like every segment of the market mm-hmm. is sort of captured here.
0: Totally, yeah. So yeah, the platform was Gumroad. I think a lot more creators are gonna do this. We saw Jeff Wittek do this using Patreon. It wasn't really Pay What's Fair. It was, you know, Paywall gated. Uh, Moment House has been used for live premieres. I'm interested, to be honest, in exploring a, you know, live episode of some type using Moment House, like a digital live, you know, or a webinar or something that's that's live where we can engage with with all of you. Would um, you want
1: to do pay what's fair? That's a cool idea. If whatever platform we used had yeah. it as an option. That's I I love
0: Pay What's Fair. I think Pay What's Fair is super cool. Pay What's Fair always works with a minimum. You have to have a minimum. Um because otherwise someone can put a cent and it's like I personally, I don't think that's how it should work. I think it should have a minimum. It's like a dollar or $2, Um, but I do like pay what's fair. I think it's cool. All right, so that live conversation brings us to another thing from Dan Purcell on the subreddit. He said, Samir bringing up live streaming on this week's Greater Sport episode got me thinking. Is there anyone who does like an SNL or late night style production on a streaming platform, be it YouTube or Twitch? This seems like a market that is yet to be broken into. In the context of Colin and Samir, I could see an interview or Q&A Style in the vein of Inside the Actors Studio on YouTube, where creator interviews could essentially be live streamed and smaller creators could ask bigger creators questions, like how student actors ask pro actors questions on the show. Of course, that would create pressure to contribute, which is what they talked about earlier in the episode. But what could happen is the live stream audio could be repurposed into podcast, you know, and so on and so forth. I'm not going to read the rest of it. But I mean, the high level is I can't stop thinking about this style of production where we are live streaming an episode and then the VOD exists on YouTube and the audio is cut for podcast. I think it's a really interesting opportunity like this show that we're recording right now, where we're engaging with the audience, where we are talking about current topics. I'm really interested in trying this show live on YouTube.
1: I mean, I agree. I definitely think it's something we should try on YouTube. It would be, it's great that we, you know, we curate these questions for Mm -hmm. these episodes to make sure that, you know, they're interesting and valuable, but I would love to also have a live feed while all of you are watching and listening.
0: Because what if we're talking about something when it comes to Elon Musk and Twitter, but you guys have an interesting perspective that we can add. For me, it feels more like a radio show with people calling in, like that's interesting. But we have been talking a lot about comparing our show to late night and exploring how that can come to life. And something I don't know if we've talked about yet, but we've moved into a new studio we're in a new space and we're actually at square one when it comes to developing our set. That's going to take a long time. We'll bring you guys through that process probably on our second channel, but like we don't, we're, we're developing this next chapter of the Colin and Samir show and trying to figure out exactly all the experiments we've done over the past two years. What do we want the show to be? How do we want the channel to look and feel?
1: Yeah. It's amazing that we've hit this milestone of a million subscribers and it feels like a weight off our shoulders, but it's, Interesting to me that we have yet to truly decide on a format. Yes, we're a podcast. Yes, we do interviews, but we also do creator merch reviews. Uh, we have this really interesting 40-minute documentary-style piece coming out soon about mm-hmm. Beast Burger. I mean, we have a variety of formats, and it's just surprising to me that like, even at this stage, we have yet to really figure it out. And you bring up late night, and I think why there is... a, a a relevant comp to late night is because you look at a late night channel and they've got monologues from the hosts. They've got interviews. They've got different games and skits. I'll call them almost like our creator merch videos. They have this variety of programming. Mm -hmm. They have man on the street sometimes and it all exists on the same channel clipped Mm -hmm. out and it works.
0: Yeah. I don't know that you and I are maybe, you know, know, like Victoria Paris said something on our show where she said, I'm not a creative person. I'm a consistent person. (laughs) I think we're the opposite.
1: We are the exact
0: opposite. I think we're the opposite. I think we're creative people. We're not necessarily consistent. And I don't know. I, I think I'd be curious to hear other perspectives from the outside looking in you and I sit in, you know, in a room and say like, man, we're making so much different type of content. Everything is, is different. I wonder from the outside looking in, if it feels like that I mean, I'm I sure for the it.
1: most part, yeah, you're either listening to this and you consistently, for the most part, listen to it, or you just tune into our YouTube channel and watch that. Or
0: you do a mix of both. You do a
1: mix of both, yeah. yeah.
0: But with something you just said, we have been talking about this for a very long time. We have our Mr. Beast documentary about us spending a day with him during the opening of Beast Burger coming out this Sunday on our YouTube channel if all things go well with the, the audio mixing and everything. But we're aiming for Sunday. we aiming for Sunday. What I would ask just from, from this audience group that tunes into this show and that's that's very plugged in and knows how long we've been working on this is if you could tune into it on Sunday, leave a comment, like the video,
1: and if you really like it, share it. It would mean a lot to us. Should we put the trailer in the subreddit a day early? Totally, yeah. Okay. Well, if you're listening to this, the trailer... Well, no, we'll just put it in tomorrow when this comes out. Okay. Yeah. But
0: yeah, if on Sunday you could you could engage with the piece, tell us what you think about it. If you don't like it, don't share it. But if you like it, it would mean a lot to us. We've been working on it
1: for a really long time. Or share it and tell us why you don't like it.
0: Yeah. True. True. Fair. Okay. The last thing I want to say before we get to the next question is regarding our last episode uh, with Ashley. We did swap out the audio for that. So thank you guys for telling us that the audio was messed up. That was really helpful. We heard you loud and clear. You didn't hear the show loud and clear, but now you can because we swapped the audio, which is a great thing you can do on podcast, but appreciate you guys giving us that, uh, that heads up. All right. How to share podcast income comes from the subreddit backstory. I'm launching a podcast next month with two other creators, me, and a creator friend spent a month planning this podcast and another creator reached out uh, to one of us to pitch a separate podcast We decided to merge two shows and are feeling excited and positive. Question, once we get monetized, what is the most fair way of distributing ad revenue? Sponsorship integrations, et cetera. Simple 50-50 split turned into a 33-33-33 cut. This will be the first time I earn money on a shared project. I've been leading the direction and production of the show and I don't mind paying the upfront costs but also likely be in charge of recording, editing, finding sponsors. While I recognize I'm signing up for more work, I don't really feel comfortable at the moment taking a higher percentage of the income. That's a whole other can of worms. Is there a podcast standards? I look at the flagrin podcast with Andrew Schultz as the loud host, but it's supported with three other guys. I wonder how the financials are structured. Am I the loud host? Thanks. All right. Couple different ways you can do this. This is an uncomfortable thing, period. Right? Like Talking about revenue shares, uncomfortable. You got to do it before you start the show. Now, what you could, you could do, there could be a situation here where you are the showrunner of the podcast. You are the senior producer. You said you're, you're recording, you're editing, you're finding sponsors. You're the, you're the guy who's making it all happen. So what we could do here is come up with the market rate for a showrunner. So let's say for this show you're going to get paid $50,000 to be the showrunner and you're an equal partner in the show. Mm -hmm. Now, all of a sudden, the balance makes sense. You're doing all this work. So the first $50,000 made goes to you. Then it's shared equally amongst the hosts. But I think writing down the different jobs that are being done and saying, I'm the showrunner, but I'm also a host. So the hosts of the show can get equal share of the revenue, but- there's other roles outside of being mm-hmm. a host. So if you are doing other roles, you should also be compensated like that. So if you want to keep the even share, you can totally do that. But I would just say you get a guaranteed payment to do the other work.
1: Yeah, and let's say someone else was doing the sales and sponsorships and the yeah. integrations. You could incentivize them the same way that an agent mm-hmm. is incentivized, where you know that member of the team gets a portion, a percentage of the income that they bring in off the top, off the top. Right. So yeah, I do think it's smart that if you have three people, but you're all doing a variety of roles, if some people need to get compensated differently for those roles, you can always do that. And you should talk about that before because you're doing a job.
0: Mm -hmm. That's actually famously how the podcast call her daddy started to have a riff was because Alex Cooper was getting paid more through barstool sports because she was doing the editing. She was coming up with the ideas So she actually got a higher base salary, but they were equal partners when it came to revenue share. And Sophia didn't know that. Sophia didn't know that. So you you have that conversation, but I think it is completely fair for you to get paid more. If you don't want to do that as a share, then come up with a price that you all agree on that you get paid first before the revenue share starts. That would be the simplest way of doing that. All right, Colin, I have a question for you. I read a book on Sunday.
1: I know where this is going.
0: Now, let me clarify. You're a liar. I listened. You are a liar. I listened to a book on Sunday called Atomic Habits. Highly recommend this book to everyone. It literally basically breaks down human psychology, which is fantastic. Important to understand as a creator, entrepreneur, anything. But it was my first time ever listening to an audiobook. Unbelievable experience. I did four and a half hours on Sunday and did an hour on Monday and I was done. Finished the entire book. Now, I've noticed in conversation that... Other people have been talking to me and saying, hey, I'm reading this book. And then I stop them and I say, I have a question for you. Are you reading the book? or Are you listening to the book? And almost every conversation I've had, they say,
1: I'm listening. I think people need to clarify up upfront. I, I think- I have a completely culture- different perception of you. If you told me that you spent your weekend reading a book than if you told me that you listened. What's the perception difference? The perception is that you are incredibly scholarly. You have carved out time to dedicate- your eyes to a book, a good old fashioned book experience. Maybe you've got a tea mm. next to you, an herbal tea. I did have a tea. But here's the problem. You're listening the same way you listen to podcasts and you're no, a madman. You're no, a no. madman when you listen no, to no. podcasts. I'm, I'm actually you do not different things. No, no I'm you actually do, not Samir?
0: I sat in a chair with a notebook and took notes okay. and drank a mud water chai and listened. Okay. Well in that instance, and that instance alone- And then and I also went on a walk. In
1: that instance, and in that instance alone, you can say that you read the book. If you're doing anything else, if you're acting like you're just listening to a I, podcast, listen, you have to declare- I have a question for you. That you listen have to Have you listened to an audiobook? book? Samir, I'm four chapters into Atomic Habits by James Clear. Are you? Yeah. Four chapters, that's like 25 minutes. Yeah, it was pretty easy. I was just like on the way to work, I listened
0: to what's, it. What's really lovely is when it goes like, when he's like chapter 16, and you're like, I've just read 16 chapters. Yeah, it feels really good. Yeah. It feels really good. Mm-hmm couldn't recommend an audiobook more makes me want to make one makes me want to make one as good media does as good media does good media makes you want to make one. So yeah, I want to ask the audience, like, is it okay to say I read
1: a book if I listened to a book only if you are sitting in a chair with a with hot beverage <laughs> that you made yourself and it's raining outside.
0: Uh, okay. Um, Casey Neistat went on rich roll, rich roll, good friend, good podcaster, Great dude, great skin. Rich okay. Roll's podcast yeah. uh, is like the- You should have
1: led with great skin. Rich Roll, yeah. great skin.
0: I love Rich friend. Roll. Um, just candidly, Rich, if you're listening to this, I have to tell you that I felt, uh, first, an incredible sense of jealousy because I've always wanted to have Casey on the show. And second, I thought you did a really good job in interviewing Casey Neistat and and, and kind of bringing a, a a broader perspective to him as an artist. I think he said some really interesting things on that show, The one that stuck out to me the most was him talking about patience as an artist and a creator. I really loved that. Um, Can we play that right now? Yeah.
1: Let's play it right now. I think the thing that I've come to appreciate more than ever is the importance in having patience. I think that there's such a tendency, especially in a world where you're able to count your views um, in real time, that if it doesn't work today, it's never going to work. And, you know, like... I talked to Jimmy, Mr. Beast about this a lot. And that guy spent whatever seven years making videos before he had one that broke a thousand views or something extraordinary like that. And now he's doing a billion views a month. It's extremely unsexy. It's extremely uninteresting. And no one wants to hear that it takes time, but it takes time. Patience is really the most undervalued um, aspect of succeeding in the world of media today
0: patience is the most undervalued aspect of succeeding in the world of media today. I love that quote. Fantastic.
1: Yeah. And it's honestly the, the, a similar type of advice that he gave us Mm -hmm. over six years ago. Now, when we met him for the first time, Mm -hmm. we were kind of asking for direction and he was basically saying, look, it's up to you and it's going to take time.
0: I love that advice. Um, I was also really interested in hearing him talk about his movie that he made about David Dobrik, which hasn't yet found a streaming partner or a home. And he said something really interesting. He said, I'd rather have the film die and no one see it than put it on my YouTube channel. I thought that was really interesting to hear from him, that he felt like it, what the context of it wasn't for YouTube and also that it would define him if he put it out on his YouTube channel.
1: Yeah, I mean, I, I completely understand and agree that he should not put it out on his YouTube channel. Stylistically, it's very different. Uh, you know, if if the documentary, which we've seen, was in the same style and in the same production as he makes his YouTube videos, and it just happens to be 45 minutes long or an hour, I would say, put it up. This is your magnum opus? magna what? Magna Carta. Magna Carta? No. No. Magnum opus. Magnum opus. Yeah. Yeah, I would say, like, Go for it, but YouTube channels are not a dumping ground for content. It's not like this is a network, in my opinion, where you know if it's called Casey Neistat, it could be all sorts of things just about Casey or whatever, mm. or that he's played some role in. He's a filmmaker who's done all types of projects, but they don't all go on his YouTube channel. Yeah, it's very much about the direct relationship with him. And in the documentary, he's not speaking directly into the camera, into his own lens. So I think it, it wouldn't make sense to be on his channel.
0: Yeah, I don't know. I thought, I thought that was like such a strong POV on not putting it on his own channel. Uh, I don't know. I found it to be interesting. I wonder if it'll find a home. I hope it does because it's, 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 a, it's a good movie. It's, it's, it's interesting to watch. And I think he's a great filmmaker and I enjoyed watching it a lot. I hope it finds a home so that everyone else can watch it because that would be so interesting if he just doesn't put it out and he's honest about that and he'd actually rather it die. I just wonder
1: why it hasn't found a home
0: i have my thoughts but i think it's around like the story you know feeling just about david dobrik like no one really wanting to touch that story potentially that's my pov but who knows who knows what's going on speaking of Donnie dobrik he's opening up uh his pizza shop this weekend call i know Dobricks. Dobricks. yeah he's do you open- remember in our in our first merch review we drafted up a logo for it. It's not that different from the logo. I just got to say that.
1: In that both of them, the color is red. That's right. Yeah. yeah, Just like
0: any other pizza shop. All right. If you guys have questions for us, hit us on Reddit, join the Colin and Samir subreddit. And again, our piece about Mr. Beast Burger is coming out on Sunday on our YouTube channel. If you guys could engage with it, like it, share it, Tell us what you think about it. That would be awesome. We've been working on it for a really long time. It would mean the world. We will see you next week.